Let's ask God, as we do every week, to help us understand his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray, as we pray every week, uh, that you would have mercy on us and help us now to understand and believe your word. Uh, Move in us uh, by your spirit so that we receive it with rejoicing, And we are strengthened uh, to change our thinking and behaviour to put it into practice. And help me to speak it truthfully and clearly as I would. In Jesus' name, amen. If I were to make the claim in the public space, you know, radio, TV, the university, that the health and soundness of our society depended on the vitality of the Christian movement, what do you think would be the response? Incredulity, ridicule, instant dismissal, perhaps irritation at such an overinflated view of the importance of the faith. How do you respond to such a claim? See, many talk of our time as post-Christian and view being a Christian as adherence to an outmoded and largely discredited worldview as either a hangover of a religious upbringing or a sign of personal insecurity or just someone who's no good at sport looking for a supportive community. The Christian faith's official position is at the margins of our society, as illustrated in the passing of the suppression legislation without amendment over the objection of so many church leaders. In fact, some see the faith not just as irrelevant but as positively harmful with its views on sexuality and other matters of personal morality, an enemy of the personal autonomy that's at the heart of human flourishing. The vitality of the Christian movement, essential for the health of our society, that's not something that would ever enter the heads of our contemporaries. And it can be easy for believers to start seeing our own living the Christian life like that, you know, some kind of hobby, personally satisfying but not of, not of not much relevance to anyone else, something to be willing to be flexible about, something to be kept to ourselves. As important to society as, say, our membership of the chess club, of no community significance beyond the happiness of its participants. But Jesus has a completely different take on the place, on the role of his followers in the world. Speaking to his disciples, those who follow him, believe the gospel he's preaching, listen to and learn from him, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Oh, he goes on and says, you are the light of the world. Jesus says his followers are salt and light, that is both good for the world and necessary Necessary to stop the world going off, society being enveloped in darkness. Salt for his first hearers was not an optional condiment to be indulged in by those who are not worried about their blood pressure. No, his was a world without refrigeration. Food, fish and meat was preserved by salting. Salt stopped the rot, stopped them going off. Salt was also used medicinally rubbed into the wounds to stop infection and it was valuable, accompanying sacrifices in the temple. And salt was then, as it is now, 
also a welcoming seasoning to bring out the flavours in cooked food. In Mark 9, Jesus says salt is good and all his contemporaries would have agreed. So Jesus is saying that his followers are necessary to stop the world going off and to make it a more palatable place. And they are light. Now, we all know the goodness and necessity of light. Light's the source of great beauty, enriching our world by revealing its colours and detail. Light helps protect us by revealing dangers and guiding us safely on our way. And light is necessary for life. No light, no photosynthesis, no sustaining of life. The threat of nuclear winter is the threat of prolonged darkness, of the denial of light. Light is good, useful, necessary. And that's the way Jesus thinks about his followers in relation to the world, to human society. Salt and light, preserving, enhancing, protecting life, the life of human society. And they have this role, not by being like the world, but by being distinct from, different from the world in which they live. Salt has its effect by not being what it's applied to. Light is a mutually exclusive opposite of darkness. And just as these images tell us Jesus has quite a different view of the role of his followers, so they also tell us he has a different view of the world. It's a world that needs salt and light. Our society wants to see itself as being on a journey of inevitable progress, increasing in enlightenment, getting better and better, as having in itself, in humanity alone, all it needs to promote its own flourishing and to secure its future. But Jesus thinks of our world as always in danger because of its rebellion against God, its king, in danger of decay, of going off, of sin, making it less and less palatable, less and less a good place to live in, and in danger of being overtaken by darkness, the darkness of injustice and unrighteousness, of ignorance of the true God, a place in need of salt and light. The salt and light only Jesus' followers bring. You are, he says, salt. You are the light of the world. Now, Jesus' estimate of the role of his followers, of the necessity of his followers for the preservation and enhancement of life in the world, for the health and rich enjoyment of the world, is completely at odds with the modern marginalisation of loyalty to Jesus, so at odds that it kind of sounds almost megalomaniacal. I shouldn't have tried that word, should I? Too many M's, right? Shocking. And even more unusual, more shocking, is how Jesus thinks his followers have this role, how they exercise their good effect. See, think, how, how do others seek to exert influence in and on a society? Founding great institutions, being grand strategists for change, coordinating maybe political campaigns or campaigns of social action. Now, is this the way... Jesus says his followers are to be salt and light. Well, perhaps at different times and for different reasons, Christians may be involved in all these things or refrain from involvement in those things. But none of those things are at the heart of their being salt and light in the world. Does it depend 
on having power of any kind, institutional, political, social, intellectual, the power people think they need to have influence, make change. How are Jesus' followers to be salt and light in the world? Well, Jesus says they have this role, do good in the world in which they live, just by being genuine followers of Jesus. You are those, he says, listening to me, who believe my preaching of the kingdom, who embrace the repentance the gospel calls for, you who reckon because I am the king who brings God's kingdom, those I pronounce blessed are truly blessed. And so you seek to be these people. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus follows the salt and light. We are salt and light as we are genuinely disciples of Jesus, embracing the life Jesus calls blessed. Now, we looked at that life last week, but let's refresh our memories. We are salt and light as we are poor in spirit, not full of ourselves, not self-righteous, but knowing our own spiritual bankruptcy, that our only hope is in turning back to the Lord by believing his son and receiving his forgiveness, in living a life of repentance and faith as we look to him to give us the kingdom. We don't think we can seize or establish it ourselves. We're salt and light as we mourn, as we are real about the horror and pain of death and the judgment that falls on us all, as we take seriously and are grieved by the effects of sin, our own and that of others. We're salt and light as we are meek, gentle and humble in relating to others, not going on about our own rights, not demanding we be respected and get our own way, but seeking to promote the interests, the welfare of others, entrusting our cause to God. We're salt and light as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, that's not telling others how to live, but being passionate about living rightly ourselves and knowing that living rightly is living rightly before God, the Lord of his creation. Oh, we're salt and light as we're merciful, moved to respond to need, giving people good they do not deserve, haven't earned, and not exacting vengeance on our enemies. We're salt and light as we're pure in heart, motivated by a concern for God's honour and glory and not for our own power or position, seeking to please him only, not seeking popularity and the praise of others. We're salt and light as we are peacemakers, being people who know that at the heart of peace is peace with God and so seeking to make peace by preaching the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of his death for sin and rising again, the gospel which reconciles us to God and overcomes the divisions between us where it's believed. And yes, we are salt and light as we are prepared to suffer, to keep on being this person, Jesus' person, to live with Jesus as our King, our Lord, and in suffering, not becoming bitter and angry, but rejoicing at being his. It's only by being this person, embracing Jesus' values, having the character Jesus calls for in those who belong under his rule. 
It's only as we are people who live under the rule of God's crucified king now and who will one day know to the full what they've already started to enjoy, his comfort, the inheritance he gives to his people, the satisfaction of their longing, the mercy, knowing God, the belonging to his family that only Jesus brings. It's only as Jesus follows that we are salt and light. So before it's anything we do, we are salt and light by who we are as Jesus' followers. And being that person will then show itself in a distinctive light. Jesus says, by being who you are as my followers, so you're salt and light in the world. By keeping on willing to be different in the way Jesus teaches us to be different. Willing to be different because we believe the gospel and confess the crucified Jesus, Lord. That is how we do good in the world. The good effect of Jesus' followers in the world has nothing to do with power and everything to do with being faithful to Jesus. And so that means every one of us who's a follower of Jesus, whatever our age or our intellect or our wealth or our standing, can do this good in the world. But let's think about being different. See, the images of salt and light reinforce the necessity, the inevitability of Jesus' followers being different from the world in which they live. And so we need to face the challenge of being different directly because being different is unpopular. I mean, we don't like it. We don't like being the odd one out, the one others look at. And those we're amongst Well, they don't like our being different either. It's unsettling. It upsets what people want to take for granted. Being different is unpopular and being different is work. It's that little bit of extra effort to ask, would Jesus want me to go along with this behaviour, embrace that goal, share in that language? It's work to take what we hear and see and test it against the truth of the gospel before we let it inform our thinking and decisions. Work we have to do all the time for the world is very good at promoting its values in all sorts of ways, even entertainment. Here's one example. Take the movie Babe because I saw it yesterday. Yeah, you know the pig. Right, you all know the pig. Good, okay, pig. Well, we all feel good for Babe at the end, don't we? But actually the message of that movie is incredibly unhelpful. You see... The story of Babe is not the familiar story of overcoming disadvantage by hard work and talent. It's like it, but it's actually very different. See, the message of Babe is that you can transcend your nature. Be whatever you wish to be if you want it enough. Pigs can become dogs and not bacon, right? Now think of that. You can be whatever you think you are. Now, that's a very different message, isn't it? It's a dangerous counterfeit that actually has the seeds, as we know, the seeds of confusion and tragedy in it. You've got to think about it. But we get so many messages, one that's perhaps a bit closer to me than you. Retirement is me time. How is that consistent with being meek, putting others' interests ahead of your own? 
Or everything's okay as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Sounds good, but it's actually saying you can be a law to yourself. How does that sit with hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being pure in heart? Another, we're constantly told that life will be, our life will be transformed by this or that purchase. You want to feel good in the face of life's trials and difficulties? Spend money. Oh, what a feeling. Surely it's better to mourn and seek real comfort. Being different's unpopular. Being different is work. And being different is a challenge to the discipling of our children. You see, most of the time, we don't want our kids, do we, to be the odd one out. Talk of difference can prompt fearfulness for them in our hearts. Of what will happen if he or she is the only one in preschool who thinks, as you probably taught, hopefully, that sand is a dangerous myth preaching a works gospel. Or you fear how they'll take it. It's something they really want to do and their friends all accept as normal. Clashes with living Jesus' way, with belonging to Jesus' people. Oh, you fear for them if they're identified as the only one in their class who thinks sex outside the marriage of a man and a woman is sin. We're fearful for them, aren't we, in the face of this difference? And we know that Often we've already burdened them with different high behavioural expectations. Being kind to the unpopular kid. Being respectful of teachers, even those you disagree with. Being patient with those who tease them. Truthful, even when it will get them into trouble. You see, we fear that being different will be particularly hard on our children, whom the Lord has given us to bring up as disciples of Jesus, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But being different is Jesus' calling. A people with a different Lord, a different authority directing how we live our lives, a people with a different hope and goal for life, not success or power or wealth in this life, not even the respectable Christian suburban goal of undisturbed but moderate comfort and a happy family. No, our hope and goal is the reign of God and a place in the new heaven and earth. And we have, as you've heard, a different vision of the good, the blessed life. To be Jesus' disciple, to be willing to be different, to be salt and light, that's what we're called to. And to fulfil that calling, we need to be convinced of the truth of the gospel, don't we? But being convinced of the truth of the gospel, we will also be convinced that this is a good difference, a difference that's good for all, good for our children, for the crucified Jesus is Lord. And so we'll be convinced that it's helpful to teach them that we are different and why it's good to be different and that this is a difference to be embraced and sustained wholeheartedly. Now face the reality of difference. And let me plead with you, don't shield your children from the difference. Rather teach and model yourself how to live this different life and show how good it is. Because as we're about to see, this can't be a temporary difference, a phase of life. And it's not a difference that's meant to be hidden. 
And this difference can't be lived out by us withdrawing, becoming a sheltered, defensive ghetto. You see, salt and light are spread abroad to have their good effect. If we withdrew, oh yes, we could just deal with people like us all the time. But Jesus wants us, expects us as salt and light to be in the world while being different from the world, to continually engage with our neighbours as his followers for their good. Well, when you think about being different, the discomfort and the cost of that, you can see why there's a temptation to stop being different, a temptation Jesus warns us about. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt losing its taste is probably a strange idea for us because, you know, in our cupboards all we have is refined salt. It only ceases to be salt when it ceases to be. So how can salt ever be anything but salt ever lose its taste? But the salt of the first century residents of Israel was actually cut from the salt pans around the Dead Sea and brought up to the towns and villages in big chunks. Chunks that were actually a mixture of many minerals and particularly gypsum. And when it rained on those chunks, the more soluble salt was washed away, leaving something that looked essentially the same. But having lost its salt, had lost its saltiness. And that saltiness couldn't be restored for only salt, the very thing now absent had the properties of salt. So what remained wasn't good for anything but to be tossed out and not tossed where most of the rubbish went, the dung heap or the field, but onto the paths and roads to be trampled underfoot. Jesus' hearers knew that salt had to retain its distinctiveness to be of any value. And when it loses it, it was just useless, worthless. Now we know, don't we, that what Jesus says is true. We have too many examples of what looks like salt having lost its taste. People who had the appearance of Christians but had given up following Jesus and lost their distinctiveness and have become no use to anyone. Now you might think immediately of notorious examples of hypocrisy like clergy who abused children or Ravi Zacharias now exposed as a sexual predator. But the danger of looking at them is that it can blind us to the way we can lose our distinctiveness as followers of Jesus. We can, for example, feel our way of life threatened and then engage with others in the the political sphere, but not to love others and bring glory to Jesus, just to get power and to preserve our own privileged, inherited benefits and comfort. Oh, if we're to engage in political debate, as all of us to a greater or lesser extent must in a democratic society with compulsory voting, if we're to engage, we will only be salt as those who trust in Jesus seek to be meek, peacemakers, merciful, humble, committed to truth, not misrepresentation. Or we can be seduced by material prosperity, See see being well off as our birthright in this country and so temper our mercy or desire to please God when it threatens our wealth. Or worse, we can start to use religion as a cloak for greed, putting, like our society, our hope in wealth and not in God. 
or we can start to feel the pressure of being ridiculed and marginalised for following Jesus and want to accommodate Christian truth to the prevailing intellectual and moral climate. So we become people who take our lead from the world and in so doing betray the world. And let me say, brothers and sisters, that really is the history of liberal Christian moralism for the last 100 years, trying to be like the world and betraying the world. Don't be salt that loses its taste. So you think, how can we stay distinctive? Salt that's really salt. It's an important question with a long answer, a lifelong answer, really. But it starts with keeping Jesus as big in your life as he really is. The Lord, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, the one now with all authority, the one who will be revealed in glory, And keeping Jesus big, we will keep on thinking that those blessed by him are truly blessed. Oh, and then we can keep our saltiness by practising real relationships, uh, real relationships with the holy God each day, confessing our poverty of spirit in confessing our sins and then rejoicing in his graciously including us in his reign now through the death of his son. Practising real relationships with other believers where we know each other well enough to be able to spur one another on to love and good works as we see the day approaching. Oh, we can retain our saltiness by never becoming complacent about the salvation of others so we keep the big issues of sin and judgment, salvation and eternity always before us. Oh, and... We can retain our saltiness by trusting Jesus enough so that when we meet misrepresentation and slander, we rejoice. We have to stay salty, preserve our distinctiveness by being Jesus' disciples. And Jesus says we must also be willing to be openly different. We can't try and be invisible as his followers, you know, to bend over backwards to blend in. We have been saved to be seen. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. Light by its nature is seen in the darkness. It can't be hidden. A lamp is lit, uh, lights turned on to be seen. The Lord Jesus calls us into his kingdom, calls us to follow, to be seen. A hidden light is useless. We are light as we are open followers of Jesus, glad to own his lordship, to give us the reason for our different life, our loyalty to him. And Jesus calls us to let our light shine. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Now, this is Jesus calling us to keep on following Jesus, to keep on living by his teaching. And when we do that, others will see the good works that inevitably flow from that. For to embrace the blessed life will show itself in doing good. So this is not a doing good to be seen by others and earn their praise, the behaviour Jesus criticises at the beginning of chapter 6, as we'll see. 
No, this is living openly as Jesus' follower, living to please him. And then people seeing the good that comes from that, that comes from you being a follower of Jesus and giving praise to your Father in heaven. Now, what are these good works that will be seen where we live as followers of Jesus? And why will they result in praise of our Father? So let's think about the good works. Uh, The good works are not specified, but three comments. Firstly, these are good works done by those who are poor in spirit, who've repented and believed the gospel and so received the kingdom as a gift. So they're not done to earn a place in God's kingdom. They're the fruit of the gift of living under Jesus' rule. Secondly, good works will flow naturally and inevitably from a commitment to live the best life, the the blessed life. So, for example, if you're merciful, that'll be seen, whether it's in supporting a a sponsored child or help for a needy neighbour. If you're a peacemaker, you will seek always to share the gospel of Jesus that brings peace with God. Oh, if you're pure in heart, you won't be corrupted by greed, but be fair and just. And thirdly, good works will flow from a commitment to the teaching of Jesus that will follow in this chapter, to the righteousness that Jesus is about to call his followers to, the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And that commitment will be seen in many ways. For example, faithfulness in marriage, producing the good of a stable home, generosity to others, seeking reconciliation that heals instead of the anger that harms. Yes, even love of enemies, doing good to those who hate us, that counters tribalism. Uh, Good works are not specified because, in a sense, they're infinite. God has prepared, it says in Ephesians 2, already good works for each of us to do. And their shape will depend on your life. For our good works are how these commitments work out in the circumstances of our lives, with our gifts and our opportunities. And often, like the Good Samaritan, remember him? He didn't set out to conduct a mission to the wounded on the Jericho Road, did he? Often, the good works find you. Where you're committed to being Jesus' person, well, you're already ready for them. You know how to respond to the need that God brings to you. And sometimes you'll see and pursue the good works God calls you to. And these good works, sometimes they'll be big and get attention, sometimes they'll be small, sometimes they'll be big, say, like the work, for example, of Catherine Hamlin and Andrew Browning. Uh, You may have heard of Catherine. She's been before she died in the news, book, Hospital by the River. Uh, you wouldn't have known from, you know, the media or Wikipedia that she's a very faithful Christian, right? Uh, but she went to Ethiopia with her husband in 1959, answering an ad placed by the Ethiopian government for an obstetrician and gynaecologist. Now, in that time, she saw a lot of women, women whose lives were ruined by damage done in childbirth. So she stayed. And she established first the Addis Ababa Fistula Hospital in 1974. And then over the coming years, she established a foundation and five regional hospitals. And over the years, treated 60,000 patients for fistula, transforming their lives, allowing them to return 
to their families. A great good work. And you mightn't have heard of Andrew Browning. I think he's a great nephew, but he's a believer who went through Bible college, who deliberately trained to carry on that work and then took it to the rest of sub-Saharan Africa. That was his opportunity and his gift. Oh, but sometimes our good works will be known only to those who benefit from them, like the work of Tim Winton's neighbour who turned up to help his mother bath his dad who had been injured in a motorbike accident. And uh, in the transcript, uh, there's a, uh, a portion of his interview with Rachel Kahn on the spirit of things talking about that. But being Jesus' person, well, we will do good and we should do good. Good trees bear good fruit. God will bring good works to you and you to the good works he's prepared as you are the person Jesus calls you to be. And being that person, engaging in those works, you will bring glory to your heavenly Father. Now, why? Why do our good works cause those who see them to glorify your Father? And notice, by the way, wonderfully, that it is your Father. Jesus teaches his followers that they, trusting him, start to share in his relationship with the living God. So his Father is our Father, and we live under his authority and know, like him, his care, protection and love. But why is he praised for our good works? Well, it's because if Jesus' followers live as light and salt in the world, giving themselves to do what Jesus is taught to be the person Jesus calls blessed, it's because the Father has sent the Son. It's because the Son has The Father has vindicated the teaching of the Son and established his authority, shown the life of disciples to be in truth the blessed life by raising Jesus from the dead. It's because the Father has graciously given the Son authority to include in his family all who repent and believe, the needy. And it's the Father who's entrusted to the Son the spirit that changes the life of all who repent and believe in Jesus. The Father is praised because he is the source of all the good work we do, the sustainer of the lives of Jesus' followers, and the good we do just reflects his generous, merciful, gracious goodness. So don't believe the spin of our secular world. That commitment to Jesus is irrelevant or even harmful to the well-being of the world, to our society. To be called to be Jesus' followers is for every one of us who believe in him a high calling, a noble calling, a calling to do good by being salt and light in a world that is always threatening to decay, always in danger of being overwhelmed in the darkness of its sin. But don't think there is any other way to be salt and light except by being Jesus' disciple on his terms. You will never become more useful to the world by abandoning Jesus, by abandoning being directed by his teaching. That is the path of becoming useless and worse than useless. Only by persevering in the distinct life, the different life, of being Jesus' followers, in being those who belong under his reign by holding fast to his teaching, can you and I be salt and light? 
But persevering in that distinct life is love. It is love of our Father who is praised and it is love of our neighbours whose life is protected and enhanced. So when you're tempted to think that being different is too hard for you, remember, this life is for the poor in spirit. People who don't think they have the resources in themselves and so are constantly looking to the Lord Jesus for the help and mercy, for the forgiveness and life they need. And when you are tempted to think that this life is too costly, well, remember, this is the life of those who know the blessing of the reign of God, who know that now in part in being welcomed into the kingdom through repentance and faith in Jesus, who know now in part and will one day know in full the day when God wipes every tear from our eyes, know the, the comfort of his love, who know the satisfaction of our longings, who will inherit the new heaven and earth, who will be welcomed as children of God, who will have the glorious vision of God, who are assured of his mercy. This is a life that it is too costly not to live, too costly not to be different. Remember that. This different life is the life, the only life, for those who know the love and faithfulness of the Lord Jesus, the saving King, who know it because they know he has died for their sins. He's the Son of God who loved them and gave himself for them and that he has been raised with all authority and power and every word he speaks proves true. So if you're a believer in Jesus, if you know that for yourself, let your light shine before people so that they'll see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would convict us of the truth of Jesus' gospel, that he is now the exalted king who has saved his people through his death and that he has the authority to welcome all who turn to him, to forgive their sin and to bring them into your family as your children. Convict us of the truth of the gospel, we pray, and move us by your mighty spirit to live the life of Jesus' followers, the life of the poor in spirit, those who mourn, who meek, who hunger for righteousness, who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and who rejoice to be yours whatever the circumstances. Move us, we pray, to live this life so that we can fulfil your purpose for us in this world, salt and light, those whose good life and good deeds bring you, our great God and Saviour, to be praised. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.